0: You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace. Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospang.
1: Hello and welcome to the reversing climate change podcast with Nori. I am Ross Kenyon here with Paul Gamble and Christoph Jospay. we We're in Washington, D.C. And I realized this morning just how West Coast I am slash have become because I couldn't tie my tie. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot how to tie a tie. I felt like a like a 12 year old boy. And uh, Paul did it for me. So thank you, Paul. You're welcome, son. You look, <laughs> you look very dapper, <laughs> Ross. You also taught me how to shave. No, I remember that one. <laughs> <laughs> how about tying your shoes? No, I got that one. That one's okay. That's
2: great. Well, sitting across from us, we've got Jimmy Dawkis. He is the senior program officer at American Farmland Trust. We will learn more about what that means, what that does, how that fits in the broader farm economy and all the sorts of things that they're advocating for that very much align with things that we care about too. Jimmy is, I think, someone who probably has more knowledge than all of us collectively in this space. So we're just going to try to suck it all out of him and pass (laughs) it on to you, the listeners. Um, But Jimmy, we like to start with people's story to really understand how they got to where they are today, which is sitting on the reversing climate change podcast. So
0: how did it all get started for you? Wow. Well, thank you for inviting me and, and coming here to DC to our offices. So, I grew up in New England, in Connecticut, across from Hartford in a place called Glastonbury, Connecticut. used to be farmland. And uh, during my lifetime, became more and more suburban uh, households. And we lost a lot of the orchards and and other things. So, uh, as a high schooler, I worked in the uh, tobacco fields during the summers. That shade tobacco in the uh, Connecticut River Valley, really great. Uh, agriculture. But over time, that's all been turned into houses or much of it has been turned into houses. Um, I got an opportunity, I went to school, got involved in environmental uh, organizations, but I got an opportunity to work at American Farmland Trust 21 years ago and found that this was an opportunity to combine my interest in land, my interest in agriculture, my interest in food and in environmental issues and one of the things that i was interested in was the loss of farmland to houses and how my hometown had changed over my lifetime and turned into houses instead of uh, farms and orchards so i've been with a uh, aft for uh, 21 years i have like to say that i've had almost every job in the organization and as i've bounced around but also filled some gaps and uh, it's been very interesting the last Decade I've been on the program side, and the last two years we really have been uh, focused on creating our climate initiative. It's not that we just started working on uh, climate change; Uh, we started uh, back in the uh, Waxman-Markey legislation days. But we have elevated it uh, to a national initiative and are working in uh, a number of places across the the country.
1: Yeah, where where do farmers fit into climate change? Where uh, where might they um, have a lever to pull? You could say.
0: So climate change is going to impact uh farmers and ranchers and landowners probably as much or more than any other sort of group you know on the planet. Uh agriculture is a weather-based uh industry, so the kinds of changes that climate change is creating in terms of Increased heat um, and storms and fires and waters and droughts and too much rain and heavy uh, storms. Those are the things that make farming and ranching a lot more difficult. So they're sort of on the front lines of some of the impacts. On the other hand, we believe that they can be one of the most important solutions to climate change. That is, they they being farmers, ranchers, and landowners, but ag lands and natural lands, including forests and wetlands, can be part of the solution by drawing down carbon from the atmosphere and sequestering it down in the soil and into the roots. And that is a unique and absolutely needed activity, given what we're seeing now from all the research on uh, on climate change. So, farmers and ranchers are both at the forefront of being impacted by it and yet also able to be uh, in a really important uh, solution to climate change.
2: And I guess to kind of round that out with a trifecta, a lot of the way that agriculture is operated today is one of the driving causes, because it's a major emitter of carbon dioxide, especially when you plow your depleting the soil of nutrients and carbon dioxide. And you're certainly adding a lot of, you know, the way that fertilizer gets made is by refining ammonia, which basically emits pure carbon dioxide. Um, There's a lot of fuel usage, moving food around. You know, one of the things that I love about American Farmland Trust, and I totally hear you growing up in a place that has these kind of beautiful fields around, and then you go back and, like, oh man, there are houses. Uh, that was my backyard. Grew up with a cornfield in the backyard. Now there are 250 houses. You know, it's just a state of development. Development's real, but it seems like American Farmland Trust is able to say, we're going to find those places that are under threat of development and make sure that
0: they stay food producing lands. W- why is that important? Yeah, so let me just start off. I didn't even say it, but uh, American Farmland Trust, our mission is to save the land that sustains us, to protect our best farmland, to promote environmentally sound farming practices, and to keep farmers on the land. Okay, so that really puts us in a position to really care and work on, you know, the future sustainability. And that isn't always true for a lot of different groups. A lot of groups are. Engaged in agriculture because they want to do it for for a different reason, or some farm groups are really member organizations. So we're trying to think of where is it going to be in 50 years? How do we protect the land? So this is our mission is really important as it relates to climate change because how we use our land and how we develop and how we develop our urban and suburban areas has a really, really big impact on uh, climate change. So one of the things that's overlooked, we feel, in the whole discussion about carbon farming and carbon sequestration is if we don't protect the land, if we grow in a sprawling manner, we undermine all the good work that we can do because sprawling development increases vehicle miles, it increases energy use. And so we've done some studies in California and New York trying to sort of ballpark and do some alternative scenarios that find that um, if we can do farmland protection and compact growth, that we can You know, by reducing the loss of farmland, we can reduce uh, greenhouse uh, gas emissions. So that's sort of for AFT. That's sort of the core mission of AFT. And then that becomes a really important first step in climate change. Once you protect the land, then we can go on and now have a conversation about um, management practices and the issues that you raised and how we might change some of those and improve those.
1: What what's happening right now with the changing demographics of farmers? I've told this story before, but I, I knew some people who were young, graduated from college and just went and decided to start farming which I I always thought that you were just born into it. Farming is almost like a caste system. The fact (laughs) that you could just choose this as a career was always very odd to me, is maybe this new way of thinking about farmland uh, rather than monocultures and uh, giant farms, but smaller carbon farming operations. That seems like something that might appeal to younger farmers who want to get into it. Is that something that you're watching very closely?
0: Well, yeah. And so that's sort of the third part of our mission, which we say keeping farmers on the land. And- Well, first, let me just answer the demographic question. Yes. I mean, farmers, when you look across all of the age groups are getting older, right? As a a group. But it is also true that young farmers is a growing sector. And it's not just young, it's new and beginning farmers, because some of them are young and like your friends, but some of them are Second, you know, job opportunities people are retiring or looking at it or building out. And so we look at it as new and beginning farmers. So here's one of the issues. One of the things that pops when you talk to new and beginning farmers as a barrier. To doing what you just said is access to affordable land. So that's part of the work that we're trying to do in terms of creating um, policies uh, at the federal and state level and local level, because land use is a local issue. To try to make more land available in the future, so that people who are interested in the kinds of things that you're talking about have access to land. In fact, Ben on your on your podcast a couple of uh, sessions ago raised that as one of the issues. Right, money to buy land and um, that kind of uh, accessibility. As the competition for farmland goes up because of housing, and we can talk about other kinds of competitions because there's other competitions from renewable energy and from uh, reforestation and other kinds of things. But as that price goes up, it makes it even harder for people to get on. But I think that because of regional and local food systems, there are new opportunities for uh, farmers and ranchers to be you know, closer to the markets, to maybe earn a higher premium for some of the product. And that's allowing them to bring new ideas to how we do farming. And uh, I think that that's very exciting.
1: Yeah. Where is all this competition for land use coming from? Obviously, you have just development that can be quite sprawling at times, but you also mentioned something about renewable energy competing for some of this land.
2: Yeah. And I just just want to kind of jump on there. Oftentimes when you hear models that are being put out by the intergovernmental panel on climate change and how are we going to solve climate change? Oh, well, we're going to need negative emissions. Well, how are we going to do that? Oh, with bioenergy, carbon capture, and storage. Well, how are we going to do that? We need to plant a lot of trees. Where are those trees going to go? It very quickly starts thinking about models that are planting trees on land that we need to feed the planet. And so, it it ain't going to work. The math's not going to add up. So, there's all these competing forces. So, yeah, given that, American Farmland Trust is sort of uniquely positioned to become this protector of food producing lands. And yeah, quite curious to see how you can talk sense into those who are advancing things in the name of sustainability, but don't necessarily
0: see the whole equation. So we're going to take that quote though and put it up on our website though. <laughs> that uniquely situated. So we think so and um that's why we've you know we dove into this and are um expanding our uh, sort of our operations and, and and our work in this area because we think there's a real Important aspect of looking at the competition, this emerging competition for land. There's always been a competition for land. We issued a report in May called uh, Farms Under Threat that looked back from 92 to 2012 and found that 1.5 million acres of ag land are converted every single year. So that to us is unsustainable, right? Okay, this is urban sprawl or urban development, I should say, but then it's also sort of suburban and rural sprawl and that's what we refer to as fragmentation so you take a big large farm or ranch and you divide it up into kind of ranchettes or McMansions or things like that and so that's a big use of of land and so at 1.5 million acres if we're losing that every single year that's a real problem here's that's here in the United States we will be projecting out to 2040 this next year with this project so that will be even more interesting as we look at What's the total potential loss of ag land or conversion of that ag land, but also where does it happen, right? Where are the hot spots? The other thing that we're trying to do is to look at the best land, and the best land is what's most productive, what's also versatile, that growing different kinds of things, right? It's not just growing corn, right? Even prime soils often grow corn, but we also want sour cherries, and we want cranberries, and we want, uh, you know, walnuts. And then lastly, resilient. That is right, uh, uh, land that can continue to grow even as we're going to see more and more impacts of climate change. So that's one of the things that we, we want to do. Once we're identifying that land, AFT, that's what we want to focus on, right? That's the most important land to be protecting for intensive food production. The competition for land, for all ag lands in the future, is in addition to housing and that fragmentation, it also comes from renewable energy, but in particular sort of solar. and We see it flashing in different parts of the country, but certainly in the Northeast, but we've also seen it a lot in California, um, where you'd like to site solar panels and we as an organization want to support expanding solar. We absolutely need to do that to uh, address climate change. But we don't believe that it should be sited on our best, most productive farmland. And without some policies, we're sort of behind the curve. Without some policies to try to create incentives to drive it away and and to try to put it on sort of more marginal land, we see that some of the solar panels go up on on, um, better land. And that doesn't make any sense. In addition, another increasing competition for land is what you mentioned, which is the, the need for increasing Carbon sequestration and running models that say it's easier to look at this and see, you know, growing trees will uh, sequester carbon. So let's put those on the land and what's the potential? That's how models run. Let's look at the potential available land. And, you know, then you look at it and you start converting 10 or 20 or 25% of ag lands to forests, which I don't think is a is a great idea. Putting some of those those trees, reforesting marginal land makes a lot of sense. And so we're hoping that some of our research to identify the best land also identifies some of the marginal land. And one of the things that we want to be looking at in the future is what do you do with that marginal land? I don't know that it's sort of best use, but some of it would be solar panels, some of it's going to be reforestation, some of it um, probably shouldn't be uh, uh, shouldn't have been farmed in the first place. So I think that that becomes a really important part of the climate solution. The last piece of it is I think there has to be a lot more research and a lot more attention on the carbon sequestration potential of active ag lands because we believe that long term. We're going to be much better off if we can solve this on ag lands and not just have it be, you know, all about reforestation, right? And so, if we can do that on ag lands, I think that that's actually what we say, and you know, it's in the drawdown, uh, the project drawdown book. If we can solve it on ag lands and it's productive, that's the most sustainable uh, solution to address climate change, right? We're going to produce food. We're also going to sequester carbon. We're going to make it more productive in order to be producing. So.
2: Yeah, there's a lot there to unpack, and I really appreciate the way that you kind of framed the positioning of American Farmland Trust. Actually, the last guests we had were some folks who do agroforestry, and that seems like a very interesting hybrid where it's not saying, no, trees are actually good. And when you plant the trees on the soil, what's going to end up happening is the fungal network and the corridor actually gets a whole lot better and improves the biodiversity and improves the productivity of your land and all these great things. And so we're totally on board there. To sort of go back to my uniquely positioned, the reason I said that is because you operate this space that goes from farm table to Congress and you everything in between. So could you talk a little bit about how that works and how, I guess, how does this work? How do you translate what you're learning on the farm level into Congress that are actionable policies and how does that go back to the farm and what,
0: what needs to sort of fit? in your view? So, I think that um, one of the ways that we work or a, sort of a process is we're working with a lot of partners on the ground, but we're trying to do uh, research and understand what's sort of holding back kind of adoption of these conservation practices or what we call conservation cropping systems. And we can get into terms <laughs> uh, later if you uh, if you want to and uh, labels. But um, and so, we're trying to understand what's holding back some of that, because we believe that we sort of know more than we're doing, right? That, that is, we know more about uh, some of the climate smart agriculture than is actually going on on the ground, like cover crops and tillage and things. Um, and so, one of the things that we're doing is identifying barriers and then trying to develop solutions to those, and then testing those out in the fields and with our partners. And we're working with conservation districts and others in the field with farmers. One of the things that we are able to do then is to come up with some ideas and solutions to tweak the policy, right, once we understand what's going on, what works. And then we are a a policy organization working at the local, state, and federal level to change policies, to improve policies, to build the case for more support for those kinds of policies. And then those policies get changed, like the introduction of a new conservation program within NRCS. And then we're taking that and trying to work on it to try to accelerate adoption back on the field with these uh, projects of providing technical assistance and other kinds of things. So it's a really a circular, between testing it out in the field, identifying barriers, making solutions, changing policy, and then coming back to uh, implement uh, those programs.
1: Why do you think that prices might not be the best way to allocate land in this way? Like if this is very productive farmland, that would be priced into it. So why would you need a policy to say, hey, don't sell this farmland and turn it into condos, but wouldn't turning into condos be the highest valued
0: use? Well, so I don't think that if we're really looking at societal benefits, the highest and best use is, is just determined simply by how much we would pay for it. That's an economist's viewpoint, but I don't think that that's actually true from an environmentalist or societal benefit. Yeah, it's benefits. possible there's
1: just not prices for those other things, and otherwise it might be taken into account and you're compensating with the policies because yeah, is, well, those things aren't priced.
0: Yeah, they aren't they they, they aren't priced and and we don't know what would happen if we didn't have food and we don't know uh, many externalities aren't aren't priced both positively and negatively. But I think the reality is, you know, agricultural land right now cannot uh compete on a dollar for dollar basis with, you know, with houses. And so you know we believe that there should be carrots and sticks, so there are care, you know there are carrots and incentives there are sticks in terms of regulations, so there's some base amount of regulation. we don't say that you can't sell your land for housing development, but we think from society's uh, viewpoint that you'll be better off if we protect a bunch of that and we protect our best land and so those are the kinds of policies we want to see development like smart growth and have that compact and and then we find out that there's lots of benefits to compact, uh, growth, right? For, at, at first, we were trying to convince people. And now everyone knows that walkable communities are maybe even more livable and they're actually even more beneficial. And so that's changing. But that's the same kind of thing that we want to do on renewable energy. We call it smart solar siting on farmland. So that's another one of those things. How do we put it on the, on the land that makes more sense and then conserve the, uh, the land? And to do that, we do need some policies and some incentives.
1: Yeah. What's, what's the spread? So how much, um, is this land? I don't, I don't even know if you can give me an answer in the, in the general here, but how much is land worth as farmland? And then how much more proportionally would it be worth as housing? Is there, is it a gap where a certain carbon price and if people were doing carbon farming, it might be more at parity. So the policy might be less necessary potentially, or is is the spread just so huge that this, would, these
0: would almost always turn into houses. So, uh, I was about to say yes until you said that they will almost always turn into houses. I think there's other policies that help it not to turn into houses, right? Of where you grow and how you grow and where zoning is and all those kinds of things. But to answer your first question, the differential is too large. You can't make it up with some cost share or some carbon market, right? Just on the just on the edge, it it it, it can be tens and twenty times uh, much more expensive. You can rent land for a couple hundred dollars, under five hundred dollars. In some places, it's more than that. But then you can sell for 10 or 20, or if you're out on Long Island, $250,000 an acre. right? So it's just not, that's not comparable. But um, from a society point of view, that's okay. We're, we don't want to develop on all the land. And I think that society supports those kinds of things. So we can do that with policies. What we then need to do which maybe it's good for the conversation to shift into how we manage the land. So we have a lot of ag land, right? It's not, you know, sometimes people will say, well, don't we even have too much ag land? I don't think so in certain places, but you know.
1: It's all pretty concentrated, right? Yes. Yes.
0: And in in and around urban areas, we don't have enough for regional and uh, local food systems. But when we talk about what we're doing on the land and how we fund management practices now that's where a carbon market or payments to farmers incentives to farmers can actually really make a difference cuz most of the farmers who are active they want to be doing that right frankly they don't really want to be growing trees so that's not an option even if you could make money the landowner might but not the producer but you know for the most part agriculture is a low margin and fairly risky business, right? And so having additional revenue streams has always been something that we've always been talking about and it's been a challenge, right? You do cost share, but cost share is just a portion of what the cost is, right? But paying for ecosystem services, realizing those environmental benefits, paying and, and recognizing co-benefits, uh, trying to do it through environmental markets, um, that's always been something that if we could get it to work, it could really have a real impact on um, the activities that happen on the land.
2: Yeah, that's that's our hope. That's why we're, we're in this business and hoping to do everything that we can to get it to work. But you know, some of the nuances or challenges, and these are terms that you just threw around. So I kind of want to unpack like, what does this mean? So we've got a farm operator, we've got a farm owner, they could be the same person, they could be different. We know that half of the land in the agricultural land is rented. And so you're talking about different rental prices. So this introduces a whole another set of dynamics. So I'd just kind of be interested in getting your perspective of what you see working, what you think would work better, how maybe American, if sort of paint a picture, like if this were so, this would just be nice and
0: rosy in terms of the owner-operator rental dynamics. Perfect. That's great because we actually have uh, some specific work and projects uh, going on in there. So back to how I said it, it it works a little bit in terms of the process. You know, So we're looking at these barriers. Well, one of the things that got identified, not just by AFT, but by others as well, is one of the kind of structural barriers that if we could address it might, you know, unleash a lot more adoption on, you know, widespread adoption so we can get a scale impact was this whole question of, the relationship between the renter and what we call the non-operating landowner, right? So the landowner who is not the producer, not the person working the land. And as you said, you know, you said 50%. I think nationally it's about 40%, but it pops all over the place. And in some of the counties in Illinois where we work, it's over 70%. So that means there's a disconnect between the owner and the operator, as you said. And what we find from some surveys is that owners who both Own and rent land, do more conservation practices on the land that they own. So now we're talking about the people who get it. All right. These are, we don't have to, you know, get them to adopt or understand a new practice. These are the people who already get it and they're doing it on their own land. So there's something wrong with the relationship between the owner and the producer. And So trying to address that, we are working with the Nature Conservancy and some other groups on, we're doing surveys uh, in the top 10 states that have the highest uh, rental rates to try to understand who those non-operating landowners are. And then we're doing some sort of uh, on-the-ground work to try to create what we found is that most of the land is on uh, year-to-year leases, but more than 40% of the land has a tenure of 10 to 12 years. So you have long enough time relationships, but annual leases. So one of the things that everyone's exploring is how do we extend leases? How do we share the risk to extend leases? Because then the producers would be uh, willing to take the risk to do some of those conservation practices. One of the things we're finding in the field in the Midwest is it's just a question of communication and trust. And so if we can get some communication going between the producer and the landowner, then that relationship gets, oh, I didn't know that you wanted to, you know, do cover crops and I'd like you to do cover crops. So there's sort of uh, almost just a question of trying to create some more opportunities for the landowner and the operator. So that would be a big deal. If you could have, if instead of 50% being annual leases, you would have 50% of all of them be five-year leases. That would change the dynamics of conservation, I think, in terms of uh, millions of acres across uh, the country. That's one example of trying to work on that, and then trying to uh, see how you would, uh, you know, change policy and then try to implement that across the country. That's
2: great. I feel like you are
0: dropping so many nuggets of wisdom <laughs> that
2: someone could pay like hundreds of dollars to go to some conference, or they could just listen to this podcast and get <laughs> Jimmy giving all sorts of great ideas that could, you know, really
0: create dramatic change. Got anything else for us? (laughs) So here's one thing that I think would be interesting to listeners and I'm just introducing the concept, but... One of the things that I find in going to climate and ag conferences is we've got a wide spectrum. We've got a continuum of sort of practices and we have got conventional ag on one side and I think of it as a, as a continuum and it isn't perfect, but a continuum that works there and then you sort of add practices and you start working towards conservation, like I said, conservation cropping systems or conservation agriculture. You then work into organic maybe and, you know, again, not perfect continuum and then there's regenerative. I think given what the IPCC report said, that said, you know, we got about 12 years to really make a difference and really take some action. I think we need to do, you know, on all of those fronts. So, AFT being sort of size neutral, working with all ag, because we're looking at all the land, we want to have progress across that entire continuum, right? And so, I would love if we could get 100 million acres of conventional agriculture doing cover crops, right? That's not, That's That's an impact at scale, right? At the same time, we need our regenerative ag innovations leading the way. And I don't know, and maybe you guys can come up with a a better kind of analogy or metaphor, but there's kind of this giant grain Tanker, tanker of you know of grain out there, and that's conventional ag, and it's sort of slow to move, and it's out there, but it's the biggest thing. But somehow there are these speedboats, or maybe they're tugboats redirecting it or something, and that's what we need. We need both, and we need the you know the innovations from regenerative ag, but. You know, if we just look at only the full spectrum and a certified regenerative ag, I just don't know that we have in the time frame needed adoption. So I want to have as much of that as we can while we're also sort of bringing on. But sometimes we're at odds and we're arguing amongst each other when I think we need to elevate ag as a climate solution into natural and climate solutions, and then we have to elevate natural climate solutions up into. Federal and state climate policy, and you know that's new. At the climate summit, Natural Climate Solutions was got a lot of press. That was great, um, but we need to now take advantage of that, work with states, implement stuff, so that uh, you know over the next ten years there's changes on the ground. I'm not sure how you
1: feel about that, Kristoff, but I, I do like as long as they're going the right direction. And When we speak with uh, big ag companies, they tend to be quite favorable. They see their fertility dropping. They know they have high input costs, the same as uh, small people. They might be able to better internalize those costs and you know spread them across their entire production. But I think it's uh, getting a warm reception. I'm happy that the train has started, but also if we only relied on ag solutions, I'm not sure we'd be able to fully get there. I think we could. I, wait, I'm, what's the potential for for ag soils around the world? Do, do we know the the storage capacity? Uh, the only like actual study that we've seen about this is uh, in in the U.S. It's one billion tons per year on croplands. It doesn't include grasslands. And Alden right. is giving me hand signals behind Jimmy. That's eleven billion tons globally uh, from croplands. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So 11 billion tons a year from croplands, not including grasslands. Yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't get us all the way there.
0: No, I, so let me just, I don't, I didn't mean to say that that's the only solution. I just want to elevate it in terms of attention and, and, and resources. But I think oh, yeah. you got to do the other kinds of things. I think the other thing that came up at the climate summit was, that natural climate solutions, which would be ag and forest, you know, could be 37% of the global solution. That's what's sort of the number that got oh, sort nice. of p- passed around. A lot of that is forestry. And the only thing that I would say is, as you guys are focused and to the extent that, you know, y- your listeners are focused on ag lands, I think that there's a lot more research to understand the potential because when we do those models, We tend to not take the results that Gabe Brown and some of the regenerative people are getting because it's just not yet ready to multiply times a billion acres, right? And so this is where some of this kind of in this continuum and the different people sort of talking across, we want to encourage that to see if we could get to five or six or X percent, even while we're just trying to add 1% to all the land. And I think there's there's more research that needs to be done, but I think there's a lot more potential. Sure. And I think
1: the the co benefits that come along mm-hmm. with Ag are so stupendous that it's it's interesting that it's been ignored for so long or or very little participation in the legacy carbon markets, cause we get really excited by ag's potential and we see it's actually relatively easy to talk with people who work in agriculture wouldn't you say as opposed to something like like uh, carbon capture mineralization which uh, doesn't doesn't carry that same level of benefit
2: Yeah. Uh, also it's a question of like we know how to improve topsoils people have been doing it it has not been happening at a major scale but there and is don't we have
1: like how many decades
0: left of topsoil left I heard something like 40 years or 60 somewhere in that range yeah it depends on how you how, how you assume the uh, this soil erosion goes but yeah
1: so yeah we need to need to start working on that so there's a lot of really great reasons why we're starting with ag and are so excited to do so
2: yeah, and I really appreciate the way that you frame the continuum because I think absolutely we get a lot of our inspiration from people like Gabe Brown and the Regenerative Space. But
1: we're still coming for you, Gabe. <laughs> yeah, we're
2: still, but if if Nori if Nori is not working with Big Ag, we're not going to work. And that so Big Ag, if you're listening, we are working with you, and we're coming for you as well. And that's and it has to be that continuum. Uh, but I want to kind of go back to you know we're here in D.C. Climate change is often quite politically charged. We don't want this to be political, and we maybe don't want to even use the word climate change. And oftentimes, farmers say, well, talk to me about soil health, talk to me about improving my topsoil. But as soon as we say the word climate change, it falls on dead ears. So. Can you unpack that a little bit? Um, should we be changing our brand when we go out to Iowa, Indiana, Illinois?
0: So I think it depends on audience, right? You know, I mean, it's that sounds a little bit like a cop out, but I think it does. And we speak to different audiences in different ways. Uh, hopefully if we're <laughs> ethical and true, we're, you know, it's the same message, but it is with some, some, you know, different words or, or emphasizing things that matter to them. So um, I think that we have to talk about climate change. And if we had this conversation four or five years ago, I think that everyone had said, you know what, we'll just sort of not say that. And we'll only talk about soil health. And I think that actually worked within the sort of ag community and with the USDA. But I think that um, it's important to be talking about climate change and to be trying to get over the hump, even if we don't have to debate how much was human or not, or just that it exists and that we have to do something about it. Having said that though, as our director from our Midwest office said, hey, Jimmy, you know, okay, we're having this climate initiative discussion, but can I tell you, I never talk about climate in the Midwest. Oh, and by the way, I don't talk about water quality either. We work on that. That's one of those wonderful co-benefits. She goes, I don't actually talk about soil health that much. I talk about... Productivity and resiliency. And we haven't talked a lot about that. But again, one of the things that makes me optimistic is it appears that the same practices, right, the conservation cropping systems, and even beyond that to regenerative ag and integrating livestock into it, that those appear to be regenerating the soil, making it more productive and making it more resilient, right, which we need to do the adaptation. And that then is an economic issue for the producer and the landowner. And that's what makes me optimistic because it's a little different than some of the other solutions, right? This is what we sort of want to be doing, what we hope to be doing, which would be good for us. And before we got on the air, we talked a little bit about farmers that do a practice like this for five plus years. They don't go back. And it's not because they continue to get cost share dollars or they keep on getting carbon market payments. It's because it's the right thing to do for the soil and for their own productivity. And so that's very um exciting. Then it maybe frames a different question that says, all right, so how do I deal with this in terms of transition? How do we transition along that continuum? From one to the next, from conventional to conservation, from conservation to regenerative. And maybe there's an investment time needed during that transition of three to five to seven years or something. But that at least gives me hope for changing practices and having it uh, have long-term uh, uh, impact.
1: Yeah, that's one thing that or – you're going to say something? Nope. One thing that we are trying to do is definitely make that uh, more affordable for people looking to make that transition. I've also seen proposals that, um, as far as farm subsidies go, maybe make it easy for people to switch over to that. Where uh, crop insurance and subsidies tend to favor conventional approaches to ag rather than on the regenerative
0: spectrum. Is that true? Sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean a good a good example is if we truly believed and had the data to show that you know these practices would increase productivity and reduce resiliency, then we ought to be seeing some sort of actuarial impact and therefore it ought to influence um, crop insurance and premiums. That is, right, for the person who's been using conservation cropping systems for 15 years, they probably are a lower risk a and we, less claims. Yeah, yeah, and we 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 talked to a, a farmer in Indiana, 5,000 acres of corn and beans, have been using conservation cropping systems for, for over 15 years. And he said, "You know what? The problem is I can't really use crop insurance effectively because it compares to the county averages and I am less risky than the county averages." And so he's actually doing this um because he thinks it's the right way to do it and it is making his system you know uh, less risky than the other operations and so that should be in the future and there's a lot of work uh, around that to try to you know try to change crop insurance and that's another one of those big levers and a policy lever that could be a structural barrier that could change and so I think there's some exciting things to uh to be testing uh, in that area yeah
1: I think I have more questions but it's time for us to go. There was a lot in there. Thanks for sharing all that. No, thank you. It was fun. I want to talk about the, the nuts and bolts of the policy stuff, but we didn't. There's just too much to cover. It's
2: too good. <laughs> no, let's do ri- lightning round. Policy, go.
0: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Fix the world. Ready? I'll tell you one thing. You got to come back because we're about to hire uh, to take to become our new climate director, a woman by the name of Jennifer Moore Casera. And she's going to know all the technical stuff because she is the co-director of uh, the Northwest uh, Climate Hub and she's the soil health lead in the, the Northwest or the Western part of uh NRCs, and so she's going to be coming on board, and I'd love to do a, another one because she could then tell you really how some of the soil health stuff works and the soil health trainings and things like that. It would be very exciting. That, that sounds m- great. Million times yes. We'll <laughs> we, come back for that. Yeah, this and is NRCS the first is time.
2: Cool. This is the first time Nori is in town in DC. We are certainly impressed by the strategic importance of this city, and we recognize that we will need to be here probably much more often than we have been. We which is th- thick,
1: why don't you? Yeah, exactly.
0: And by the way, Jennifer's in, uh, in Corvallis, uh, Oregon, so she's not actually here. Uh, okay. So, so that's it, even easier. Easier <laughs> for us. So we'll be there next. We're coming for you, Jennifer. <laughs>
2: that's, that's our new line. <laughs> well, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Thank Good. you, Jimmy. We look forward to the next time we get to hang out. Thank you.
1: Thank you.